What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? What the hell, Mark, is going on? Well, what the hell is going on? And this is both a, a tragic, but also in many ways, an uplifting story. The tragic part is that the United States of America has left behind, stranded, not just a few hundred American citizens, but tens of thousands of Afghans who were our allies during the war, who risked their lives as translators working for our embassy, working with our troops in the field, fighting the Taliban, and we've left them behind. And that's appalling. In fact, NBC News reported that a senior State Department official says that the majority of Afghans who worked for the U.S. military and applied for special immigrant visas have been left behind in Afghanistan, the majority of them. We know that our NATO allies, because they couldn't stay beyond the deadline President Biden set, so the NATO allies have been forced to leave behind their citizens and their allies. Canada was forced to leave behind 1,250 Canadian citizens, permanent residents, and family members in Afghanistan. Britain left over 1,000 Afghans who worked for its military and its embassy. Germany left behind 6,000. France left behind 1,000. We have just left behind untold numbers of people who risked their lives for the effort against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. The uplifting part of it is it's such an American story. I mean, it goes back to de Tocqueville, if you think about it, where the government has failed, private Americans have stepped in. The veterans of the war in Afghanistan who are still in touch with these translators, who are in still touch with their families, who build friendships with them, are in touch with them and have been working tirelessly over these last few weeks and continuing even after the U.S. withdrawal to get these people out. So where the government has failed, American veterans are stepping in in what has been called a digital Dunkirk. And it's an incredible and remarkable story. So I think our listeners who know us well have heard me talk a lot about World War II and my sense about the invocation of that phrase, never again, you know, I look at what we did to the Syrian people and our failure to reach a handout to help them. Half a million dead. You know, I look at a million in concentration camps in Xinjiang, the Uyghurs, and I, I think of all of those pious people who tell us never again. And I look at a place like Afghanistan and I say to myself, and I think a lot of our listeners say to themselves, and I know you do too, Mark, I'm not sure how anybody can, with a straight face, use that expression about our policy at the same time that we have abandoned people who have given their lives, their families' lives, given everything. Yes, absolutely to support their nation, but also to support our soldiers and our national security. You know, this is such a disgrace, such a stain. And what made it so much worse, and I know we've said it before, and I'm going to keep saying it because that's how bad this is. When Joe Biden puts the blame on the Afghans, as he has now done repeatedly for just not being willing to fight the fight themselves, for being too quick to crumble, I just think to myself, you know, 
this is a country that watched as the Holocaust happened and decided not to bomb concentration camps. This is a country that watched as Jewish refugees and children circled at sea and decided to send them back to Europe. We are still doing those things and we are doing them while people are applauding this president and saying what a great guy he is and what a great decision he made is, it's gross. Well, I don't think a lot of people are applauding him anymore, Danny. <laughs> they were applauding him are, before. Are you kidding me? You're wrong. The worm has completely turned. This is no longer on the front pages. This is no longer in the top five news stories. This is no longer in the narrative that the White House and its apparatchiks and the media support. We are watching people being murdered every day, and it's not making the papers. No, I agree with that. And I don't think there are a lot of people except with a few notable exceptions. I don't think there are a lot of people who have said that Joe Biden has crowned himself in glory in this episode. You know, what was amazing is that for a few weeks, the criticism was truly bipartisan. He was getting hammered on MSNBC and Fox News. He was getting hammered in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Washington Post. And now that the evacuation is over, I think there's a segment of the political class in Washington who's ready to turn the page and move on. And let's start talking about how we can pass $3.5 trillion in spending and all the rest of it. But while people in Washington are ready to pivot, these Afghans who've been left behind can't pivot because they're hiding in their basements from the Taliban. They are making phone calls, desperate phone calls to their American friends, the men and women who served in Afghanistan saying, please help me. What do I do? My brother's been killed. The Taliban executed my father. I'm hiding. How do I get out? They can't pivot. They're stuck. And they're stuck because of us, because they've been betrayed by our country. What does it say about our soldiers that they have to? You know, I'm sorry. The comparison to Dunkirk is unbelievably invidious. Dunkirk was a rescue being undertaken by the British government in which private citizens stepped up to help. We are not undertaking this rescue. The veterans groups that are out there, the soldiers that are out there who are trying to do right by the people who did right by them, they're doing it alone. And in fact, they're doing it even as the U.S. government puts up obstacles and barriers to them and tells lies about how many people have gotten out. Because of course, the answer is, it's not just that people haven't gotten out, not just Afghans who supported us, it's Americans, green card holders, passport holders, people whose lives Joe Biden has jettisoned because they're just not worth interfering with his ideological fury about the wisdom of getting out of this war. Oh, but Denny, it's their fault. They shouldn't have been in Afghanistan. The State Department warned them not to go. Or they didn't want to leave, Danny. They didn't want to leave because they're dual citizens. You know, oh, the yeah, dual no, citizens no, no. are less are less American citizens than any other American citizen. And so shameful about this has been how Biden, in an effort to deflect from his failures, this is the worst exercise I've ever seen in victim shaming. You know, that it's the fault of the Americans for getting stuck there. And it's the fault of the Afghans for not fighting for their own country. It's everybody's fault but Joe Biden's. He will blame anybody and tarnish anybody in order to make excuses for what is the most catastrophic military surrender and defeat this country has seen in a generation. So for those who thought that those might have been Mark's views that he was uttering, you go back and watch the speech that Joe Biden gave in the last week of August. 
discussing why it was that he did the right thing, doubling down on what he did, because all of those things, the victim blaming, the victim shaming, the criticism that people didn't answer the messages that didn't heed our call to leave, that all was contained in a singularly appalling speech given with a remarkable energy. And the most appalling thing, Danny, is that, you know, when he says there are some Americans who don't want to leave, you know, there are stories you can, I mean, it's all over the press, but, you know, you can look at the media from the last few weeks. An SIV applicant shows up or even an American citizen or dual citizen shows up at the gate and they say to him, you can come in, but you have to leave your kids and wife behind. Who the hell is going to leave their kids and wife behind? Nobody. Oh, well, you just want to stay because you wouldn't leave. We gave you the chance to leave by yourself and abandon your family. So that goes into the basket of people who didn't want to leave. They all want to leave. But who among us would leave our children behind in a situation like that? Right. But I mean, if you are as so dishonorable as to give that speech that Joe Biden gave, if you are so heedless of human life and human freedom that you will support him as his secretary of state, national security advisor and secretary of defense all have done, then, of course, you are exactly the kind of person who would have hopped on a plane and left your wife and kids behind because that's who they are. Those are the kind of people who support this policy, Mark. And that's just the way it is. So what we're doing is we are talking to somebody who doesn't make us ashamed, (laughs) somebody who's actually doing something to try to help the people who did so much for him. And it's a real pleasure to welcome Elliot Ackerman back to the podcast. So first of all, those of you who remember Elliot is the co-author with Admiral James Stavridis of the fantastic book 2034. And we had them both on the podcast a few months ago to talk about that book. And Elliot, as you know, did five tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was in Afghanistan, both as a Marine Corps captain and as a CIA paramilitary soldier, and was really on the front lines of this battle, literally taking down Al-Qaeda leaders and bringing them in, you know, dead or alive on some of these missions. And he got to know these Afghans. He worked closely with these Afghan translators. He saw them save the lives of his comrades in real time, not just hearing the stories, watch it happen. And he wrote a fantastic piece in the uh, New York Times, which we'll link to in the transcript. The headline was, it shouldn't fall to veterans to clean up Biden's mess. And he talks about in that piece, some of the things that the veterans are doing and why this shouldn't be their responsibility. It should be the United States government that's doing it. So once a Marine, always a Marine. And I'm you know, more than proud to say that and delighted we have him on. Here's our interview with Elliot. Elliot, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you guys for having me. Well, thank you. Americans have been horrified to see how their country has left behind so many, not, I mean, American citizens for one thing, but also Afghan allies, people who fought and bled and risked their lives for us and their government's failure to rescue these people. You're a veteran of Afghanistan. You served there as a Marine Corps officer, as a CIA paramilitary officer. You've been on the front lines of this fight, and you've been involved in this effort, which has been called the Digital Dunkirk, to get these people out. Can you take us behind the scenes a little bit and tell us a little bit about how this effort started and what it's been doing? You know, this effort really started organically, you know, and so much as there was a problem that many of us saw was playing out in real time. And by many of us, I mean, just anyone, a veteran, journalist, activist, anyone who had ties to Afghanistan, that we were getting frantic calls from our Afghan friends and colleagues saying that they couldn't get out, had no way to get out and needed our help. And so very quickly, I think, you know, we began organizing ourselves to try to find ways out for these people, whether it be 
organizing ourselves by raising money for charter flights that could potentially fly into Kabul International Airport. There are journalists I know who've reported on the Taliban for many years, and so they were leveraging their contacts within the Taliban to get clearance for people to come to the airport. Or in my case, you know, I think one of the, the contributions I was able to make as a veteran was just that you know, I still knew people in the service and in the intelligence field, and so could just help liaison with them as large groups were trying to get clearance into the airport. So you know, this is a whole bunch of people in, in all sorts of different cells trying to help get Afghans out of the country. And yes, yeah, sort of a digital Dunkirk or you know, what now is starting to feel even more like a underground railroad. So I want to talk to you a little bit about not just what you're doing for these folks, but sort of some of the details about your relationships. I think that people hear about Afghans and they hear about obviously people who have supported us, but what they don't understand clearly because they didn't live it in the way that you did and the way that your fellow service men and women did is about who's been left behind. Can you just paint a picture for our listeners about who's been left behind? In the most broad level, and I say this kind of, you know, with the emotion of what exists here is the people who have been left behind are the people to whom we made promises over 20 years. And they're the ones who believe those promises. So I can tell you stories of, you know, I have an interpreter I was very close with he came to the United States, but his family was still in Afghanistan and receiving threats. And fortunately, we were successful early on in getting his family out. That's probably, you know, one of the cases, you know, where the connection is the most close to me in my experience. But very quickly, it has ranged beyond that to, you know, to Afghans, I don't know. And uh, I think most of the people working on this at this point, you know, these are not folks who they're pulling out, you know, just their people who they know, they're working on the cases of people they don't know. Well, I'll just speak for myself. For me, the moral imperative things that, you know, as a nation, we are an indispensable nation. I still believe that we are that city on the hill and that these are people who believe the same things we believe, aspire to have the same types of lives that we live, and we've made them promises. And if our government is not going to make good on those promises, then maybe some of the citizens of this country can. And I think that's why a lot of people are working because, you know, it's the right thing to do. So you had a great piece, Elliot, in the Washington Post. You said, I fought alongside Afghans. I've watched them save American lives. There was one instance you talked about where some Americans had been ambushed and how the Afghans swung into action to save those guys. Can you tell that story? Sure. You know, this one instance, and there's, you know, I've seen many other instances of this, but in the Washington Post, I was talking about an ambush that occurred in a place called Shawan, which is in southwestern Afghanistan. And I was advising an Afghan commando unit at the time. And we were ambushed going through the town and two of our vehicles were taken out. One of uh, the special forces soldiers I was with was killed and we had a number of wounded. And, you know, the Afghans were, we were all part of the same unit. They swung back around, drove into the kill zone and helped evacuate our soldiers and Marines out of that kill zone. I mean, listen, this accusation that the Afghans won't fight to me is so spurious and dishonorable, particularly because if we look at the Afghan war, the Afghans have taken more casualties any single year of this war than we've taken in all 20. So to accuse them of not fighting or some type of cowardice, to me, is, is really, it's just beyond the pale. And particularly as such, when we look at what's occurred, you know, with this rapid fall of Kabul, you know, so much of that is because when we left, we took all of our capabilities with us in so much as, you know, the Afghans relied on us for the maintenance of their helicopters, for some of their logistical trains, for their intelligence, for their medevac. And we just pulled the rug out from underneath them. 
And so at a certain point, are we surprised when you have Afghan units that are being overrun because they can't get resupplied, you know, or have soldiers who are demoralized because they know there's no medevac? So I think to use and accuse Afghans as incompetence as a cover for our own incompetence, to me, seems, again, I have no word for it aside from dishonorable. So we've talked a lot about this. You know, we had Fred Kagan on a couple of weeks ago. We had Ryan Crocker on as well. And I think, you know, you speak for all of us when you say that it's dishonorable. I want to press this home, though, because I think people need to hear it. The arguments that they make, yes, you know, let's set our president aside for a second. The message that has been sent out is, you know, don't listen to me. Look at the evidence before you. 20 years. We were on the ground there, sometimes in the hundreds of thousands, sometimes in the tens of thousands. We gave them intel. We gave them air cover. We gave them training. We gave them money. We were with them side by side fighting. And the second that we turn around, their commitment, which naturally should be more than our own, their commitment is found lacking. How are we as Americans supposed to care more about their fate, their women, their religious and political rights than they do. Now, again, I want to underscore, that's not how I see this, but that's the argument that is made. You fought on the ground with these guys. You know them better than Mark or me, certainly. Answer it. Well, the thing that I find so appalling in that sort of line of narrative is that it's often espoused by people who in other areas profess sort of very inclusive, progressive worldviews. But that narrative in and of itself has a very strong undercurrent of jingoism. In in so much as it says, we Americans would have fought. We know how to fight. We've been carrying the water as culturally superior Americans for two decades. And these Afghans just can't get it together because they're so culturally backward. They can't get it together. And how much longer are we supposed to be supporting these backward people who are so different than us anyways? So on a certain level, I find it kind of a reprehensible argument there. But then I find it also to be sort of intellectually dishonest because it's serving up a world that is not how the world actually exists. So let's look. Let's say that the Pakistanis and the Iranians, who have both supported the Taliban for decades, had stepped away. And if suddenly the Taliban had no support from Pakistan, if suddenly the Pakistani border was shut to the Taliban and they didn't have a sanctuary there, the Taliban would instantly collapse. Let's talk about the nature of war. So listen, I think we can clearly make an argument as well that if the United States, for instance, were to pull out, it's in excess of 20,000 troops that currently sit on the Korean peninsula in South Korea, what would happen to South Korea? You know, furthermore, we can look at, you know, the Germans in the Second World War in Europe and how we've garrisoned Europe to ensure security in that part of the world. I keep talking about the NATO invasion of Libya where we had to come to the rescue of the UK and France because they couldn't operate. They ran out of munitions. We're dropping concrete bombs in Libya. I actually think the most clear example and one that is not talked about is look at Colombia. We have fought alongside the Colombian government there for over three decades against the FARC. And only in this 30th year have we finally seen the total collapse of the FARC. And again, Colombia, like Afghanistan, is also a narco state. 
So, you know, this sort of idea, which I mean, to me is remarkable, I've been paying attention to Afghanistan for a very long time. And most of the time, nobody cares about Afghanistan. In 2018, there was a Rasmussen poll. When asked, 42% of Americans actually couldn't even say whether or not we were at war in Afghanistan. So the idea now that this is being framed as though, you know, Afghanistan is a war that we've been fighting and Americans have been dying at the highest levels, like it's the Vietnam War. You know, it's sort of a false reality. And I think what's sad is that's sort of the reality the American people have been served up. It's causing us to make some not only real decisions that are strategic failures, but I think even more profoundly now, we've seen it's causing us to make decisions that are moral failures and that we're not only turning our backs on the Afghans, we're turning our backs on our own values. Here's the thing also, you could look at Joe Biden and say, look, this guy's United States senator, he didn't serve in the military. How does he know how valuable these Afghan interpreters are and how, how much they sacrificed and how many risks they took? Well, it turns out that he knows firsthand because he was in Afghanistan with John Kerry and Chuck Hagel when his helicopter was forced to land in a snowstorm in Afghanistan in a uh, valley that was teeming with enemy fighters. And there was an Afghan named Mohammed who helped rescue him, an Afghan interpreter. So Joe Biden has personally been rescued by some of these Afghan interpreters who he's now left behind. And that Afghan is now pleading with him saying, Mr. President, don't forget about me. I mean, is there any excuse for him not understanding what kind of a betrayal he's presiding over? No, there isn't. You know, could I play you guys something? I got this voice message. There's nothing on it that betrays the individual's identity. I got this about five to 10 minutes before I got on the call with you guys. I don't know if you're able to hear it, but I, I hope you can. It's only a few seconds. It's yeah. happening right now. This is someone we're trying to get out. Please, sir, please. I want you to help me, my family, my kids. In this hotel that I'm, said so this is also not a, a safe place. Maybe if I see more rest, I sh I'm going to uh, shut down my cell phone and put it somewhere till I can uh, see that the situation is good. On that time, I'm going to be turned on my cell phone. I'm just completely lost. I have no idea what to do. That's someone we're trying to get out right now and have been trying for a number of days to get out. And I'll just say his brother was assassinated about two weeks ago by the Taliban, and he used to work at the U.S. Embassy. My God. You know, you do ask yourself, you know, why anybody anywhere would work with us after this. You talked a little bit about the Afghans that you worked with. There are a lot of efforts going on by veterans, veterans groups that are all going on because the U.S. government isn't doing this. I saw Adam Kinzinger advertising, looking for 737 pilots to help get folks out. I've seen other efforts from the Pineapple Express. Can you just give people a flavor of what is being done? I know you're making efforts yourself. What is being done out there? I'm seeing efforts to crowdsource funding, and there's lots of GoFundMe efforts. There are individual donors who are putting up money to try to get aircraft into Afghanistan. Frankly, that is abated a little bit. Now that the Taliban have control, the points of ingress and egress by air are becoming increasingly restricted. There are folks who are, you know, setting up overland networks to get people out. And I think, frankly, kind of digging in for a much longer game. When we had the airport open, I think you saw a lot of just really kind of pickup coordination between people who needed to get folks out, 
reaching out directly to U.S. military contacts. And I say this, this isn't just like, you know, listen, I left the Marine Corps as a captain. I sort of know my place in the universe. This isn't just like all guys, my generation. I mean, I've been interacting with folks who are retired four stars who have been involved in this effort trying to get their people out too. We just had Ryan Crocker on the podcast and he said that's all he's been doing nonstop. Yeah, it's a remarkable breakdown to see. And just to be clear, that's no criticism you know, of the soldiers and Marines who are at the airport who, you know, I interacted with and who really behaved like heroically in very tough situation. But there's been no process here and no organization from our leaders in the administration. I'm not saying that as a partisan. I'd be saying that no matter who was in the White House. This has just been really dispiriting to see. And I just hope we can come together and do the right thing, even after this story fades from the headlines, which I know it's going to. So- We started hearing stories about how the British and the French were sending teams over the wire to rescue people who worked for their countries. And there was very little of that on the U.S. side. Can you explain why? Why were we not doing those kinds of rescue operations that even the British and French were doing? Well, I can presume why. I mean, my presumption is because that the posture of the administration for a while now has been one to just, they just want it to go away. You know, it's sort of the fear of having an image of the helicopter going off the roof at Saigon was such an acute fear that everything was done to mitigate any such image. And I would argue what you wound up with was even worse images. Afghans falling from the sky if they clung to the landing gear of a C-17, I find more disturbing. And I think with regards to our recovery efforts, it's that same fear. Oh, what if we have a Black Hawk Down type incident? What if we have Americans killed as they're trying to bring Afghans into the airport? And I think we wound up with something different, which is, you know, what happened at Abbey Gate, in which uh, 13 service members were killed in a suicide bomb to say nothing of the hundreds of Afghans who were also killed. So we put our own back up against a wall here, and I think it's a wall of our own creation. And it's been dispiriting to see the fact that we're not trying to go get American citizens out. I know right now of a number of American citizens who are in Afghanistan that we're trying to get out, and we can't get them out. The Biden administration put out this, you know, green image of the last American leaving Afghanistan. But I don't think that's accurate. I think there are Americans in Afghanistan right now. They're veterans. They're not current service members. You know, people who've been doing this for the government who are now on the ground in Afghanistan trying to exfiltrate people and organize, as you said, like Northern Route to get out. Why is it that we have privatized the rescue? that the U.S. military isn't there to do this, but veterans are doing it. Why is this falling on our veterans to take care of this problem? I can tell you unequivocally, the last American is not out of Afghanistan. Yeah, that's a fact. And I think one of the reasons it hasn't fallen upon our military is because, you know, when a service member dies in whatever country, they're a representative of the United States, it's politically more costly. Whereas if a private citizen or a veteran dies, that's not really on the ledger for the administration. So there is sort of a very hard and cynical type of politics that's at work here. And it's particularly dispiriting to see that from administration that ran on a totally different prospect, you know, that they were going to be the the administration of empathy and an administration that understood service and an administration that was competent. You know, guys, I keep thinking back to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's acceptance speech when he was given the nomination for Secretary of State in which he told a story of his stepfather, who was a Holocaust survivor, who had escaped the Germans and was wandering and hiding in the forest when he heard a kind of a distant rumble of a tank. And Blinken tells a story, his stepfather approached the tank, saw the five-pointed white star, threw himself down on the ground, and he knew three words of English that his mother had taught him. 
those three words of English were God bless America. And he said those words and the tanker hoisted him up on the tank and whisked him to safety. And that was what Secretary of State Blinken said when he accepted his nomination. And the policies that he is executing right now are literally in complete juxtaposition to that story from his family. The administration is doing the exact opposite to all of these Afghan families. We're basically you know, doing the equivalent of just sending them back over to the Germans saying, you're not our problem anymore. But of course, we did that during World War II as well. For those of us who remember what happened with the St. Louis and with so many other instances, the yeah. United States was absolutely unwilling to accept refugees because you know people like to dump on Tucker Carlson at Fox News, me first among them. And of course, the United States was made up of all sorts of people like that during World War II who didn't want the country to be infected by all of those Jews, much as there are arguments being made on the fringe about us being infected by all these Muslims. I have another question for you based on assertions that have been made both during the Trump administration and during the Biden administration. And that is about the Taliban. So you were on the ground there. You knew who you were fighting. You knew who your, uh, your Afghan allies were fighting. It has been said more than once by officials of this administration and by the special representative who is dealing with the Taliban and negotiating with them as we speak to this day is Ambassador Khalilzad that the Taliban is not al-Qaeda, that they are different and that they are going to respect the rights of people in ways that perhaps they did not in the past. How much credit do you give to that? I give it no credit. There's nothing that we've seen that would lead us to believe this. I mean, I just played you a voice note of an individual whose brother was assassinated two weeks ago for working for the Americans and who is sitting in Afghanistan right now at a location where the Taliban are rounding people up and is terrified trying to get him and his family out. I think that it sure would be convenient for the administration if this was sort of a reformed Taliban that they could hand the country over to with dignity. So I think the incentives are aligned there. But uh, no, I don't think this is any type of reform Taliban. The Taliban are totalitarian. All my interactions with them are that they are barbarous and quite willing to kill, you know, with very little cause. I'm not saying that in hyperbole. I just I just think those are the facts. Talk a little bit about the consequences of our failure here. On one hand, we just have a moral obligation to these people. And I think that's widely felt in the United States. And the polls show that something like 80% of Americans want to bring Afghan refugees and certainly Afghan translators here to the United States and help them. But beyond that, you know, don't we have a self-interest in taking care of these people? I mean, if we're ever going to fight a war again, which I'm sure we will at some point because our enemies are out there, new enemies waiting for us, is anybody ever going to help us if we don't help these people? As much as we talk about the threat and the potential threats that can now come out of Afghanistan because we're turning it over to the Taliban, in fact, turning the country into a black hole in which we don't know what will be incubated in that black hole with regards to terrorism threats, you know, that is obviously a very real concern. But I think if we zoom out past the concern of terrorism to other concerns and which President Biden has alluded to, he said, you know, the reason we've got to get out of Afghanistan is we have bigger fish to fry in our peer level competition with nations like China and Russia. I agree with him on that. Those are real threats now. I mean, the United States is facing the prospect of a peer level competitor uh, in ways it hasn't for decades. But if you look at the way the United States has always remained safe when it comes to engaging with peer level nations that are antagonist to us, it's through our relationships with our partners. And what signal have we just sent to our partners around the world with the ignominious way we've pulled out of Afghanistan? And it's quite clear to the Ukrainians, to the Taiwanese, to the Georgians, it's don't rely on the Americans. And that makes us less safe too. 
And Elliot, by the way, just to add to that, it's not just we who abandoned our Afghan allies. We forced the British to abandon their Afghan allies. There are translators and people who worked for the German military and the German embassy and the British embassy and the British military and the French military. We had 7,000 NATO troops there when this evacuation happened. They couldn't stay beyond August 31st, even though they wanted to, because Biden pulled out. We've not only abandoned these people on the ground, but we've actually forced our allies to do the same thing. Absolutely. And we sort of have done it over this sort of, I think, a false prospect, which is, well, you know, we don't like forever wars. So, you know, we're pulling out of a war and we're ending war. And I'm like, this is quite different. I mean, you know, there's the famous quote by Churchill, which keeps coming to mind, which he spoke to Chamberlain after Munich, which was, you were given the choice between war and dishonor. You chose dishonor and you will have war. So I think the question is what follows, because outside the realm of just our counterterrorism, geopolitically, this has weakened us and made it more likely that we could see war in places like Taiwan, Ukraine, Georgia, all the kind of flashpoints that exist around the world. Exit question for me, and I couldn't agree with you more. We asked Ryan the same question, and I want to ask you, what can people do? You know, I will tell you, I have really wanted to help. I don't fly a 737. I know our pilots are constrained, actually, by U.S. law and regulation about what they're allowed to do, civilian pilots. I know because I asked our son, who is a pilot, whether he knew anybody, and he listed all the regulations that were going to stop him and his friends from being able to fly over and help people. What is it beyond money that we can do to be helpful to the people who've given so much to us? And including money. Who do we give to? You know, Danielle, I can kind of point you in the directions of, you know, places where you can give money, but I would sort of put to you and any of your listeners sort of something broader that we can all do, particularly as, you know, the next few days, we're going to mark the 20th anniversary of September 11th. And after September 11th, the refrain was never forget. You know, we as Americans are forgetful. It's in our DNA because this is a place we come to to reinvent ourselves. So if you're going to reinvent yourself as an American, you have to be a little bit forgetful. But it's never forget. I think we need to never forget this. I think this needs to be a real wake-up call. And if people can remember this, just keep this in your mind, what's happened here and all the work that needs to happen with getting these people out, with resettling the ones that come to the United States or go elsewhere. That's the biggest single thing you can do. So I hope people won't just give some money and move on. I would rather someone you not give money, but keep thinking about this cause, keep it in the headlines, because the future of Afghanistan directly impacts the future of the United States. Well, Elliot, we're grateful to you for joining us on the podcast and sharing your stories and for all you're doing to help our allies who this administration has left behind. We've said it so much on this podcast in the last couple of weeks, it almost seems meaningless anymore. I've literally never been more disgusted in my life and embarrassed by my country. And I hope we can get some of these people out and save some of these people because we just owe it to them. They saved the lives of our troops. Yeah, they did. Thank you guys for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing, Elliot. And keep up the good work. Please don't hesitate to let us know how we or folks we know can be helpful to you. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. So, Danny, I mean, Elliot's 100% right. Can't forget. We can't turn our attention away. You already feel it happening. 
we're starting to focus on other, other things. You know, you have this horrible situation where literally the Biden administration was praying the hurricane would be worse than it was so they could start focusing on a disaster they didn't create as opposed to <laughs> disasters they created themselves in Afghanistan and on the border and elsewhere. But we do need to reach out and help these veterans group. The federal government is not funding this. They're not giving them money. They're not sanctioning their missions. They're not even lifting a finger to help get country clearance for flights. The Biden administration said the last American left Afghanistan. That's not true. It's not true, one, because we actually left behind Americans who are trying to get out, civilians. But it's also not true because there are American servicemen, retired American servicemen, who have gone back into the place of combat where they served as private citizens and are conducting military operations to rescue people and to exfiltrate them from the country right now. So there are American combat troops in Afghanistan. They are just not U.S. government American combat troops. They are veterans who are doing this, and uh, they really need our help. We're going to link at the end of the transcript to some of the groups that are doing this. You explained very well why this is not Dunkirk, because the government is not leading it. But just like Dunkirk, private citizens stepped up to help, and we need private citizens to step up and help. Most of us don't know how to fly a plane, couldn't get over there if we could, but we can certainly help the people who can. And if you go to your local county website, as I did for Fairfax County, it will tell you the main organizations that have been charged with supporting Afghan refugees. I know Catholic Charities of America is one of them, a couple of Lutheran charities as well. And, you know, what are they looking for? They're looking for housing. They're looking for translators. They're looking for people who can even give temporary support, people who can drive refugees to appointments that they need to make in order to uh, process paperwork. They're really looking for logistical support for a community, let us underscore, that didn't ask to come here, that isn't coming illegally over our border, a community that sacrificed in order to build their country better, in order to invest their lives and their families' lives in their own country. And because of the lists that we left and the equipment that we left and because of everything we abandoned behind us, they have been forced to evacuate. So don't think of these people as illicit immigrants who are trying to steal a march on Americans. These are people who are here because we wouldn't do anything to help them stay in their country. These are real refugees, right? Yeah. You know, we talk about this all the time on the southern border hustling, like 80% of the asylum claims are turned down because they're economic migrants. And I'm not against economic migrants coming over as long as they come over legally. But they're abusing the asylum process. They're abusing the refugee process in order to sneak into this country. These are real refugees. These are people who didn't want to leave their homes who didn't want to have to come to America. Most of them left behind loved ones who, you know, they're praying every day are going to survive repression of the Taliban and who would have died if they had stayed behind. And they've come to America and we're welcoming them in. This is the kind of refugee we all agree we need to help. And so I urge everyone to help them and to help the American servicemen and women retired who are literally right now, as you listen to this, you know, in mountain passes and hiding out in the Hindu Kush mountains, trying to exfiltrate people across the border and carrying out military operations, really. They're not official military operations. They have no protection of the government. There's no base nearby with American troops to come and rescue them if something goes wrong. They're risking their lives to get these people out and they deserve our help. Amen to that. And thank you all who have written to us and tweeted about this. 
We really appreciate your suggestions and your support. Thanks very much for listening. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.